The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Whoa, a new digital music player. Thanks, Mom. Oh, I'm glad you like it, because I can't wait to toss the big stereo. And now that we got your dad that big HD TV he wanted, we can throw out our old TV, too. Hold up. You can't just throw out electronics. Really? They need to be recycled or donated. And how would we do that? <laughs> it's so easy, Mom. Today, recycling electronics is just as easy as buying them. GreenerGadgets.org has all the info. We just enter our zip code to find a certified recycling center nearby. There are thousands of them, and new ones are being added all the time. Some of our local stores are even certified recycling locations. I like that. Did you know that some of the stuff in our old electronics could be used to make new products and conserve natural resources? Well, okay then. Let's gather them up. Um, what was that website again? GreenerGadgets.org. We just enter our zip code and go. Gas prices have been going up a lot lately, and they'll probably continue to. KUCI offers a few tips to help curb this burden. First, if you live close to your school or work, consider riding a bike. It's healthier for you and for the environment, and it can actually be a lot of fun. If that won't work for you, we recommend that you make sure your vehicle is as empty as possible. In other words, don't keep junk in your trunk. Any unnecessary weight can have a huge impact on your mileage over the long run. So considering the skyrocketing cost of gas, it's a great time to break the four-wheel habit. You'll get great exercise, increase your energy, and elevate your overall mood. Plus, it's great for the environment. And you'll never have to worry about getting stuck in traffic again and have a great parking spot. Good morning. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope everybody is off to a great start. I have a very special guest this morning. Very excited to have her on the show. Author Nora Gallagher is joining me. Just to give you a little backstory, she's an American writer of memoir, fiction, and essays whose work, as one reviewer put it, is renewing the language of ultimate concerns. Her most recent book, Moonlight Sonata at Mayo Clinic, is a memoir that explores her experiences with a baffling affliction poised to take her sight. Good morning, Nora. Good morning, Janine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. I'm so glad we could finally connect. Me too. So I'm going to feature you on the entire show because you have, I'm sure, a lot to talk about. You've written several books. And before we talk about your latest book, I'd like to find out a little bit about your journey as a writer, how you became a writer. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, when I was 12 years old, I had decided I wanted to be a writer. Oh. And um, I, my parents were interested in buying a ranch. This was one of their great quests, was to buy a ranch somewhere, and they we were living in New Mexico, and we went out to see a ranch owned by a man named William Eastlake, who was um, a writer who'd written quite a wonderful novel that was later made into a movie called Castle Keep. Right. It's about a bunch of second, uh, which took place during the Second World War, and a bunch of soldiers who ended up in a castle. Interesting. And uh, 
he being a writer, he asked me something about myself, and I told him that I wanted to be a writer, and he said, who do you read? Mm. And I thought I would be very smart, and I said, Hemingway. <laughs> Twelve and, years old. <laughs> you know, I, I could see that he could barely contain himself. Uh, um, and uh, he said, well, that's, you know, interesting. Yes. Uh, he was very polite, but he said, you know, you might think about reading someone like Flannery O'Connor or... And I realized he was, I mean, didn't realize until much later that he was naming women. Oh. Um, so he had a very sensitive reaction uh, to me, and I, and I, I you know, I, and I paid attention to what he said. Very nice. But he took me seriously, and I think that was the most important thing. Which is great, because he could have, you know, busted you and said, so tell me, what is one of your favorite, uh, you know, Hemingway books? Yeah. <laughs> tell me about the character <laughs> plot and the development. <laughs> You've been like, ah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So where did that progress from there? I I went to college um, to um, actually did not study writing in college. I went to a school uh, d- devoted to the great books called St. John's College, which is actually a great school. You uh, study uh, books in the original language, so we, we learned how to read Greek. Oh. Uh, and later French, and then um, we read the Iliad in Greek in the first year. It was it was all it sounds very heady and uh, difficult, but it was actually very wonderful. We we read the books as if they were new to us, uh, which they were, of course. Yes. And we talked about them in seminars. And I didn't really study writing per se until I got out of college and I went to San Francisco and just started freelancing, writing feature stories for the local papers and magazines, and, and that was the way I started it. You didn't find that challenging, to be reading those different languages? and I, Well, you know, I did, but it was good for me. I, I enjoyed it. I, I think that reading, I think that putting something before someone that age, 17, and if I had been very bored in high school and I wanted to do something interesting, and it was very hard, you had to work all very hard all the time, but it was it was good to have a challenge put yes. in front of me. Yes. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was around other people who wanted the same thing. And the uh, we called them tutors rather than professors. They were into it, so That's we great. we all studied together. I am a firm believer that the foundation you build when you're younger, whether it's sports or academics or whatever, it prepares you for the future. I think that's a very good way to put it. Actually, it's a very solid way to put it, and it's something that I don't know that we pay much attention to. And I think the other thing that we may not pay attention to is that we talk a lot about self-esteem, but in fact, I think self-esteem comes from accomplishment. Oh, yes. You know? Oh, yes. And so when you feel that sense of having accomplished something, you feel better about yourself. I have to share a little story with you. I was going through a funk myself. By the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Nora Gallagher. And so I was going through this terrible, funky period of my life. I was 28. I wasn't really happy with my career. And my dad always said, jokingly, oh, you'll go back and get your doctorate someday. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you kidding? And because I had done my master's right away. And it was actually perfect timing. I was going through this funk. And so I looked at it as mental boot camp. Uh-huh. And it was perfect. And sometimes you need to submerse yourself in something that takes you away and it, it challenges you and helps you grow. Yes. It helps you. Yes. Good for you. 
Oh, thank you. You had accomplished a lot. <laughs> it really, it made a big difference. It made a big difference. Yes, I think that's really, I think that's completely true. So tell me about how your first book came about. Uh, it was a complete accident. I had been a journalist for, gosh, many years at that point, at least 15 or almost 20 years, and I decided it was time to write a book. And I had been in Eastern Europe doing a lot of interviewing of um, people who had just come out of the just come out of the Cold War, just come out of the wall coming down. It was the early 90s. It was a fascinating bit of journalism. I did several long articles about mainly about families and how they were affected by uh, the secret police. Interesting. I interviewed a lot of um, psychiatrists and psychologists who had been working sort of with people during that time at a time when you could trust no one outside your family. So their families had become very intensely involved with each other and sort of almost, uh, it was almost a suffocation inside the family. It was a fascinating thing. So I decided to try to sell a book based on that. And I think it went to something like 15 publishers and they all turned it down. This was an idea. Terrible. And and my agent at the time fired me. So. (laughs) Oh, great. There I was. Terrific. Uh, Yeah. It was sweet. It was, yeah. Very much so there's a, a grand life. funk for you. How did yeah, you with grand funk. deal with that? Yeah, so I I looked around, I mean, seriously, looked around for what else I could write about, and I had been keeping notes about my so-called spiritual life um, because I had been talking to um, a spiritual director, which um, some people don't really know that that term. It's, it's just a person who kind of pays attention to your to the spiritual side of your life that you talk to, you know, I don't know, I think we talked once a month. Okay. Um, and it's actually like boot camp. It's a kind of a cool way to like get in touch with what is your spiritual life and what are you doing? So I looked at my notes and I thought, huh, you know, there might be something there. Hmm. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I was working in a soup kitchen, which was one of the most important amazing times in my life. A friend of mine and I started a soup kitchen at our local church, um, Episcopal Church downtown, and the whole idea was to not have any rules regarding who could be served. And you know, We realized that if we started making rules about who came in the door and who couldn't come in the door, we would never stop. Yes, of course. So we, yeah, we took a very a Catholic worker model, and we just let anybody in the door, and they sat down, and we made soup out of discarded vegetables from a local supermarket, where the vegetable guy had told us he hated throwing things away, uh, and if he could give them to us and they were still good, we could make them into soup. That is so special that you did that. It was wonderful. Uh, so I I just ended up writing about that, and um, it sold in about two seconds. <laughs> two seconds. <laughs> now, you know, it's almost like you have this research hat. Do you always, my studied uh, qualitative versus quantitative research, how did you find that that was your thing to go out and start researching and being so inquisitive? You know, I think I, think I was just curious. Mm-hmm. That that's just part of my nature. That's great. 
Uh, and I actually think it, you know, as you as you were saying about about foundational things when when you're young, I think that um, curiosity is is one of the things that will kind of carry you through life. Yes. Um, I've noticed people who are. I, I had a, a great aunt who lived to be 103. And oh. When she was in her late 90s, she would say to me, "Now, honey, tell me more about this internet." That's great. <laughs> and she was wanting to, to figure out how to use a computer, and you know, it was, oh, I love it, it was just it, she was intensely curious. I love it. Were you very close to her? Yes. Oh, okay. uh, she was a, she was not a blood relation. She was married to my uh, to my great uncle, but I went I would go to visit her in North Carolina in the Smoky Mountains. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Yes, you know, was. I look at women like that and I say, I want to be like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And then your next book, tell me how that evolved. Um. Practicing Resurrection came about because I decided at some point while working in the soup kitchen and doing all this intense spiritual work that I might want to become an Episcopal priest. And um, Mm. it was a very interesting time where in order to become a priest, you have to go through a a, a long uh, examination basically by the Church. Uh, you have to serve in another parish beside your home parish. You have to meet with what's called the Commission on Ministry group of people um, down in, in this case, in my case, in the Diocese of Los Angeles. You have to meet with other people who are involved in the process once a month. It's it's just an long, long process. long process. You have to go through a, a, a hysterical uh, psychiatric process where you take the Minnesota Multiphasic t- Personality Test, which... Uh, you may very I've well heard of that. a multiple choice test where you you have to answer questions like I have I like sharp knives yes or no <laughs> sometimes is that well, an option yeah sometimes I do right. I mean <laughs> anyway oh, I, I went through all of that um, it was really good in a kind of backhanded way. Where I finally got to the end of it, and I was invited to go to seminary. I was approved by the Commission on Ministry. The bishop approved me, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I passed the Minnesota Multiphasic. I was not um, a sociopath. And <laughs> I realized that I didn't want to do it. I yeah. didn't want to do it. Isn't that interesting? How long? Well, tell me, how long did that take you, that whole process of the testing? Boy, and... it was long. It was about two years. Uh, I mean, the whole Commission on Ministry thing took a year, and then there's another year of really sort of thrashing around. Uh, you can be sure that any Episcopal priest has gone through this process. Did you? Does this happen a lot? I mean, is this common that someone would go through the you know two year period, or are you thinking, oh no. my gosh, no, it's okay. not common at all. all usually, right. people just usually people. I mean, the sad thing I think about this process is because it's so difficult and long. You just sort of suck it up and 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 do it the way you would do a graduate exam, sure, rather than use it as a real discernment process. Um, so my book is actually used a lot now in seminaries and in other, as part of the process to point out that you should use it as, as an actual discernment about whether or not you want to do this. Yes. Well, you learned something about yourself, and that's what happens. I did. I know. It was actually, it was good. I mean, in, in that sense, it was not a waste of time. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the church structure, mm-hmm. uh, and I finally realized that I, I wanted to be a so-called layperson. I wanted to be part of the people, um, 
that I didn't want to be part of a professional religious class. Sure. And that's what, you know, the whole experience you took away with. Yes. Yes. And and actually, I ended up doing some of the things I wanted to do, which is I've ended up officiating at weddings. You can get a license, you know, for a day. Uh, and I have permission from the bishop to preach. And that's great. I have actually baptized a baby. Oh. Uh, which was truly one of the most wonderful things I've ever done. Oh, that's tremendous. That's great. And along the way, were you still, you weren't any more professional funks, were you? Or as a writer, do you find yourself through this roller coaster ride? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always, you know, Janine, it's always just onward and upward. Yes. I mean, just one success after another. That's what writing is all about. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Do you, do you have um, advice oh. for people, though, that go through this crazy feelings of ups and downs because you've you've had to deal with rejection and it's very oh, hard. Oh yes, no. I mean, I was joking. It's I think writing I mean, it's one of those things where you certainly don't want to whine about it. Uh as a, as my cousin said the other day, he heard someone in a big hotel brunch at the next table saying to uh, one of his children, "No whining on the yacht." And um <laughs> he, that he was clear that the conversation was out about an actual yacht, but my cousin said it made him think, you know, we're all kind of on a yacht, all of us here and you know, middle class America, we're kind of on a yacht, so there shouldn't be any whining about it. So, and yes. I feel very I do feel very lucky to be a writer and to have um been able to keep writing and keep publishing books. But I think that, you know, as publishing gets harder, uh as the world gets of readers is is sort of both smaller and larger, depending on which where where you look, I think it's uh, it's always a roller coaster ride. Yes. Always a very difficult profession. It seems. I mean, I've done some different things. I haven't finished, uh, you know, screenplay, um, short stories, and it seems like sometimes when you're starting that one thing that you think is so interesting and so marketable, uh, yeah. through your procrastination, you get a better idea. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. Right. <laughs> yes. I remember a friend of mine asked my husband, who's also a writer, um, what, what's the point of, you know, he, he had said you, what you need to do with a novel is just just, just write the first draft, just uh, write yes. the first draft. And she said, well, what's the point of that? And he said, to get to the end. <laughs> oh, that's so true. And um, I think that's really true of any project, that you have to just keep doing it, because it's not... What happens is this beautiful idea you had in your mind, uh, as Annie Dillard once said, it's going to turn into a monster on the page. Yes. There's no question that it's going to turn into something completely different, not as beautiful, and that you have to stick with it. Yes. I find that, um, you know, you you get uh, mental block, writer's block, and then I, I decide, okay, well, I guess I'll finish painting the bathroom, you know, and then yeah. while... Yeah. While I'm painting cleaning the bathroom, the bathroom. yeah, I get I an idea. Cleaning the, <laughs> cleaning the fireplace is one of the real notes <laughs> that I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> it's so funny, though. You get these ideas while you're doing something else. Yes, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think you have to know as a writer when it is time to walk around and, and water the plants or weed the garden uh, and that you will actually have an idea come out of nowhere. That process... Uh, fascinates me, and I know all the, the neuroscience work that people have been doing. They must know more about why that happens, why when the brain is relaxed, it becomes, especially when I'm writing a novel, it becomes 
really amazing what comes into the head when you're not thinking about it. That's interesting. I mean, I have some of my best thoughts either while I'm exercising. Yes. Uh, and I'm talking about maybe even just uh, jogging in a pool. or Yes. And that's another way to get out of a funk. I'm so pro-exercise. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you're training for a triathlon. Yes. But just something, and it helps you clear your mind. And to get away from your your phone, your computer, yes. and the busyness. Yes, the busyness. Mm-hmm. The list, the to-do list. Yes. One of the hardest things right now, I think, for all of us, really difficult. I, one of the things that my illness taught me was the business of... Uh, getting out of that mind. That's a very tough thing to do. Yeah. Very tough. I, I do want to talk about your most recent book. Sure. Moonlight sure. Sonata. The, it's at Mayo, Mayo Clinic. Yeah, I ended up at the Mayo Clinic. I, um, I think the most, the thing I, I end up saying to people more than anything is when you, when you get very sick, you fall into another country. And, and that's, that's the most important thing I can convey. I, I didn't know that before this happened to me. I didn't understand that people who had something more than a cold or the flu or whatever, something of short duration, were really living in another in another country. That's a great analogy. It, yeah, it's you know, it's not like another country. It is another country. It has its own geography and its own language and its own a set of rules. It's just a, a totally different place. Uh, and um, it happened to me very quickly. I, I saw a blur at the edge of my right eye. I was at home building a fire, and it was like I'd caught a ghost walking out of the room. Whoa. And I thought, that's odd. And so I went to my ophthalmologist. I, I had had inflammation in that eye off and on over the years, uh, a condition called uveitis, and they'd never been able to find the cause of it, uh, so I had a regular ophthalmologist. And he told me that my optic nerve was inflamed. Um, Any reason you, why? Do, you, do they know why it was inflamed? No. Okay. And so well, you, when you have a inflammation in the optic nerve, you can go blind really fast. Oh, scary. Uh, so he sent me over to the emergency room to get intravenous steroids. I didn't even know you could get intravenous steroids. And... Um, and I, so I was walking from his office to the emergency room, which was about, oh, gosh, a couple of blocks. And there were all kinds of people on the street, you know, ordinary people, people eating lunch, people, doctors walking along and kids on skateboards. And I uh, felt, seriously, it was uh, very literal. I felt as if a glass wall had fallen between me and them <sighs> and that I was living in, on one side of the wall and they were living on the other side of the wall. And I think anyone who's had a kind of sudden, what I call a sudden break in the narrative, uh, has had this happen. Um, a guy in New York, when I was giving a reading there, said, it happens when you lose your job. Stress. Uh, you know? Yes. It's, it's like everyone, the world is going on, and you have stopped. Mm. Uh, so that, that was my, the first indication for me that I was living in a totally separate place. Yeah, and it's an incredible shock. I, I had no idea that, that many people are living in that world. So how did you deal with this, this whole situation? You know, part of, a part of it is I, 
I think the first stage of anything like that is you really are in a kind of shock. Um, I didn't have any idea how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I called my pastor, who uh, the priest at, at Trinity Episcopal Church here in Santa Barbara, good friend, uh, who's been through a lot with you know all of his parishioners, and. He said, "I'm coming over," and it was it was one of those things where that yeah, I could see it wasn't not an option. He was yeah. just coming over, and um, I tried to be a hostess that first night. I tried to build a fire, which I failed at. Um, my husband Vincent was kind of looking at me like, "What are you trying to exactly? Do? <laughs> what are you doing?" <laughs> and I realized that I was I was trying to you know be back in the in the old country. Yes. I was trying to be the healthy person who built a fire and got everything ready and entertained somebody, and I couldn't do it. Uh, I finally just sat down on the couch and waited for Mark to come. And uh, he said something very wise that first night that kept me going for, boy, for the next two years. He said, what do you do when something like this happens to you? And I said, I have nothing has this has never happened to me. Sure. <laughs> so yes. I don't know what I do. And he said, uh, well, nothing like this ever happened to me either, but I will offer one thought, which is when something really hard happens to me, I ask myself, what is real now? Mm. And that, uh, off and on, if I could remember that, uh, kept me in a place where I was not terrified of the future. That's great. Yeah. Because not a lot of people can do that, Nora. Well, I I was not at all consistent. I don't mean to put myself out as, you know, someone who knows how to do this all the time, but but that was a kind of mantra that kept, you know, if I could return to that, you know, that first night I thought, well, I'm sitting in my own living room and, I'm not in the hospital, and I can still see. Yes. And, you know, my husband is here, and my kitty is here, and my priest is here, and so far, so good. Yes. And that's more than most people can say they have right now. Yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So what was, what, what was that journey like? Because that, can't, that must have been incredibly challenging. It is incredibly challenging. I, I, and I think, again, if, you know, people have had far worse things happen them um, who are, you know, living in that country now or who have been in that country. It's it's an enormously difficult thing. Um, part of what I realized over time, as I realized more and more that I was living in a separate place, that I was not living in the place that other people were living in. Uh, I've had quite a few people talk to me after the book came out um, about their different experiences of being in this country. Uh, one, of, uh, one of my friends told me a story. Um, I tell a story in the book about being in a train station in Los Angeles, at Union Station in L.A. I had to travel to Los Angeles quite often to see specialists to try to figure out what had caused this inflammation. And I was in the train station uh, waiting for a train, and this guy walked through the station, and he was one of those homeless guys who's just fallen completely, you know, he was so at sad. the very bottom. Yeah. And I looked at him, 
and uh, I look at myself, not that there was a comparison between us, but I felt this sense of both of us being kind of totally off the radar, and everybody else was rushing around and mm-hmm. looking really healthy, and of course I knew nothing about anyone else, but I just hated all of them. Yes. Uh, hated them for being healthy, hated them for being busy, hated them for being oblivious to their healthy bodies. Um, I think that's something you experience very much in this country that's very hard to take yes. and hard to admit to. Um, and a friend of mine said she read that section, and uh, she has a, a disabled child, and she, when she first had this child and they realized that something was wrong with her, um, she said, I remember driving on the freeway in California and seeing people playing volleyball on the beach and just hating them. Hating them, sure. I can and I that. think that's something that's important to admit to and to feel is uh, a totally normal yes. reaction. You can't believe that everyone else is going about their lives. And, and how lucky they are and oblivious they are. How lucky they are. They are. Yeah. How incredibly lucky. Mm-hmm. And the little things people focus on, like, oh, my hair color is totally yeah. wrong. My hairdresser messed up. <laughs> No, oh. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, you can imagine in California. Yes. <laughs> I could go on. on the There's a lot of whining on the yacht. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Nora, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and I want to hear more about your book. Thank you. All right, hang tight. We've been talking with Nora Gallagher. If you want to find out more about Nora, you can visit her website, which is www.nora, and the last name is G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R.org. We'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to 88.9 FM, KUCI Irvine. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect the views of KUCI or the University of California, Irvine. Out on the golf course, there are the obvious hazards. There's the pond, the bunker, the rough, the even rougher. Yeah, put me down for an eight. The giant maples. The row of houses out of bounds on the right. The angry flock of geese who surrounded your ball. Even the occasional groundskeeper you had no clue was there. But if you think you found every possible hazard out there, think again. The hazard you missed could actually be a killer. It's the spot on your skin, the one that could be skin cancer. Fact is, if you're a man over 50, you're in a group most likely to develop skin cancer, including melanoma, the kind that kills one person every hour. One in five Americans is likely to develop a form of skin cancer during their lifetime. That's why your best shot is to check for a spot. It's easy. Follow through and check your skin. It could be the save of a lifetime. Go to spotskincancer.org to find out how. A message from the American Academy of Dermatology. Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in physics, I learned that I'm a loser. Today in school, I learned that I'm ugly and useless. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. In history, I learned that I'm trash. Today in school, I learned that I have no friends. In English, I learned that I make people sick. And at lunch, I learned that I sit on my own because I smell. 
In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In biology, I learned that I'm fat and stupid. And in math, I learned that I'm trash. The only thing I didn't learn in school today... The only thing I didn't learn today... The only thing I didn't learn... ...is why no one ever helps. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council. Hi there, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. We are joined with author Nora Gallagher. So we were talking about your latest book, and I want to hear, as far as, you know, you're going through this tremendously challenging time, it's very scary. Did you actually start writing during the process of all this, or did you wait a while? Was it cathartic? Was it something you did in the process? I I kept notes. Uh, I do that almost automatically because I've been a journalist for so long. I I kept, you know, I'll keep notes of of telephone conversations I was hardly even noticing. Mm -hmm. So I was keeping notes, um, and and I had been contracted to write uh, another memoir for Knopf, and I had had a totally different one in mind, but um, slowly that morphed into this story. I became more and more interested in this business of living in the other country. Yes. And what it, how it affected um, everything about my life, including my spiritual life. So um, that became really the, you know, the interest that I had is what, you know, what was happening to me. And I often can't understand what's going on with me unless I write it down. That's interesting. It's, yeah. a, it's almost like, um, I was talking to my husband about this, you find themes in your data. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And for for those who are like, what in the world she's talking about? When I remember my experience doing qualitative research, interviewing people, and you you go in with a question, and then people start saying something totally unexpected, and then you ask the next group that unexpected thing, and you find these themes. Oh, oh, that's a very interesting way to do research. Yeah, so that's um, that's a lot of times the way things evolve. So you find these unexpected patterns. Yes, I think that's one of the hardest things about writing is and certainly about memoir is that you you need to find what this is actually about. You know, I, I think people make the mistake when they're writing memoir that they think it's about them when it's actually never about the successful memoirs are never about about you. You're the narrator of the story. It's about something else. Yes, that's so true. That's so true. I have a question I didn't ask earlier but you had a very hard time getting published the first time. Was was it easier after you did your first, second, and third? Was your agent? Did you have the same agent, or was it still challenging? Uh, no, I had a, I had a new, I have a new agent uh, who's been with me since that first book, since oh. Things Seen and Unseen was published. Uh, very great agent in New York who who's uh, loyal and smart. That's great. That's great. <laughs> loyal and smart, and a lot of other things. Um, honest. I think that's very, unique, very, by the way. Very rare. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, very rare. Um, and and then I have a great publisher. You know, Alfred Knopf is a is an old publishing house. Right. It's uh, part of Random House, but it has its own uh, individuality inside the company. Um, Chief editor Sunny Meta is really capable of holding uh, holding an individual an individuality within a larger. Corporation. That's so important. I've been very lucky. And yes. I have had the same editor until she retired uh, last year. One of the more brilliant editors in the in the country. She's a was a both religion and American history at uh, 
uh, at Knopf, and she, Jane Garrett, and she, her authors have won, gosh, I don't know how many National Book Awards, something like 10. Incredible. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So I've been very lucky in that sense. Uh, I think that many people, you know, move among agents and move among publishers. and That's right. It's not an easy road. It's nice because you have this relationship with people that has, you know, carried on through time, and they've gotten to know you and seen you evolve as a writer. Yes. Which is important. Yes. How are you feeling now? How are things now? Um, I'm I'm a lot better than I was. I I think that, you know, it took um, two visits to the Mayo Clinic to finally diagnose this illness. I think one of the things I learned a lot is, is about the medical system in this country. It's, I've just finished a, an op-ed about fast medicine. We're, we're, like fast food, we're involved in a system that's not working very well. That's right, that I agree. looks good on the page. I think everyone knows this, but it's sort of hard to figure out what's wrong with it, um, and everyone has a different take. But my sense was, um, well, it actually came to me when I was, I was coming back from my second MRI. They were trying to figure out whether I had MS, which is uh, a, a very high percentage. They told me at the Mayo Clinic that something like 95% of the people they see with inflamed optic nerves have MS. It's one uh. of the presenting sy- symptoms. And um, so I, I had a second MRI, and Vincent and I, out of, out of, out of a crazy idea, yes. decided to go to Ikea on our way back from L.A. in Burbank and uh, buy a lamp. I <laughs> know. Uh, okay. It was one of those wonderful, insane ideas. And for the first five minutes, you know, I don't, this is not to condemn this particular organization, but for the first five minutes, I was really happy. Oh, look at all these pretty things. Yes. And then I realized I have to get out of here right away. And the problem with uh, IKEA, and it's clearly an efficiency mechanism, is they. You can't actually just pick something up and buy it. You have to, you have to go, you know, have a number and yes, it's and, a whole maze. Know, and then yeah, and then you and then you end up. We ended up in an automated uh, uh, cashier section, you, you know, but there wasn't anybody there, so there was no one there to give our number to the person to go to the warehouse and get it out. I mean, it was so not user friendly. And I suddenly thought, where have I experienced this before? It's very familiar. And I thought, oh, my God, in the medical system. Yes. It it was as if someone was in charge of the medical system who was not a doctor and not a patient, who had an idea of what would work, but it was all theoretical. Very interesting. And uh, and so I, I, I mean, this is a term that a lot of people are using now, but it's fast medicine. Um, and the second time I, I came across something close to the term was when I, I had a collapsed lung. Uh, part of what I went through was a lot of tests, which is part of fast medicine, where doctors don't have the time to sit with you and try to figure out what's going on with you, and so they order a test. And I had, they found in a CAT scan, they found something wrong uh, in my lung, a little lesion that wasn't quite right, and so they did a tried to do a needle biopsy, oh. and that collapsed. Oh, lung. scary. So the guy, when you have a collapsed lung, you have to have a tube put in your chest um, to 
get the air out in order for the lung to inflate. And so this guy put a tube in, and later he took it out. And when he was taking it out, he said, you know, I have no idea what happened to you in the emergency room. Uh, all I get are the results of tests. He said, I used to get the notes from the doctor who would tell me exactly who you were, what had happened, your history, and where we're going to go from there. Right. And he said, now all I get are these numbers. So I have no idea what happened to you. So impersonal. I no idea who you are. Ugh. And what he said was, which I think was really great, was um, he said, I think that medicine has lost its narrative. And I think that's really true. There's no narrative anymore. Um, yes. They're just numbers. And that's part of fast medicine, that, that you don't, the doctors can't really figure out who, what's your story. Yes. Is it so, that they, excuse me, is it that yeah. they don't take the time and they don't have the time and... They don't have the time. I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we end up blaming the doctors because they're the people who are, you know, the closest person to blame. Mm -hmm. But I, I suspect that a lot of it is, you know, administrative or bureaucratic something somewhere else, including, you know, insurance companies, administrative staffs. Uh, someone somewhere else is making decisions, and, and the whole sweep of modern medicine is towards studies and tests, so that the narrative is lost and the relationship is lost and the and the you know what other doctors have have coined as slow medicine is lost so the daily observation of a patient is gone it's gone it's no longer there yeah right and at the Mayo clinic i found when i finally got there after i'd been in this search to find out what was wrong for about 10 months i was very struck by how they kind of do the best of fast medicine and some slow medicine at the same time. The combination is really fascinating to see a place where you have sort of the best MRIs and the best CAT scans, and, and they have a system of efficiency that that is very much works for the patient. For example, if you if you have a cancellation or you have you you're done with one doctor sooner than you thought. You can go to your next appointment and ask for an earlier time, and they will try to arrange it. They have a whole system set up. That's great. Much more personable. Yeah. And when they, when they talk to you, for example, about that, they're very specific. It's not sort of that vague, oh, the doctor's not here, I don't know where, you, you know, that kind of thing that you get in a lot of medical centers. They say, I'll text the doctor. He's in the lab right now. Um, and I'll let you know what he says. And if I don't get back to you within 10 minutes, please come back to the desk and remind me. I like that. Yeah. That's it's rare. So, uh, person to person. Yes. I was very struck by that. And, and part of the way they, they diagnosed my illness was because they had hired, oh, 20 years ago, a physician's assistant in the pulmonary division who... Um, his whole job was to look at scans. That's all he does all day long. So he can spot, uh, for example, lung cancer or uh, emphysema or other diseases um, just by looking at a scan. That's great. As far as this whole experience, you wrote this book, and then how, how did you feel as a result of putting all this out there? It's very, very personal. You know, I think that I, because, again, I feel like I'm the narrator of this story, uh, that it's, 
you know, the story is more about being a patient in another country. Uh, just, you know, that it's about my experience in this place. And it speaks to, you know, the more it's out there, the more people tell me it speaks to them about their experience. Um, so it, it isn't, I don't feel that I've divulged, you know, horribly embarrassing things about myself mm-hmm. uh, so much as just try to say something about living in this country um, and, li- and how, it affects, how it affected my life. I would think this is just so cathartic, what, you know, just writing and documenting how you're feeling, what you're going through. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think I understood more about it mm-hmm. from writing about it. I think that's, you know, that's where I'm lucky. You know, I'm looking at your bio. By the way, if you're tuning in, we've been talking to Nora Gallagher, and if you visit noragallagher.org, you can read all about her. We didn't talk about this, but you uh, wrote about all these different things. You were working with Time Magazine at one point? Yes, yes. That was wonderful. I covered the um, I covered the Hearst trial in uh, San Francisco for Time. I was a young stringer. Uh, stringer was a freelancer working um, kind of a regular kind of hourly schedule. Uh, it was really my first big break as a journalist. I had a wonderful boss and a uh, small office. Learned a lot about journalism. Covered some of the big events, um, the Hearst trial, the Hearst kidnapping, the Dan White trial. Um, all of, you know, it was a very intense time in San Francisco. You sound like a lifelong learner. I, you know, just, <laughs> you, you really do. Yeah. It's just something, I mean, from telling me at 12 you wanted to be a writer to getting involved with Time Magazine and now all the books you've written, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm, hap- I'm happy to have that, those characteristics that have, that have gotten me through so far. It's great. What's next for you? I'm not sure. I think I'll probably go back to a novel that I put aside for this particular memoir. Um, I love fiction. I like going back and forth between memoir and fiction. The two styles are pretty similar. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sort of, uh, I'm still, of, of course, very much involved in the promotion of this book, which is what what writers do when they publish a book. Where are you promoting the book right now? Are you um, doing signings? You know, I just came off of a, a cross-country book tour, and um, now I'll be doing speaking events in various parts of the country. Uh, Random House, they have two divisions. One is the, you know, the immediate uh, public relations department that manages book tours, and when a book first comes out, and then we have a speakers bureau that arranges um, speaking engagements for um, all of the writers. It's a great, it's a great um, part of the Part of publishing now is that you can have an agent who represents you doing that's, that kind of work. That's great. Yeah. Now I have to it's ask a, you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You can go ahead. I was going to ask you. Do you have any advice for people that you know have reached some stumbling blocks with getting published and they're not sure, but they know they feel like they have a passionate idea? You know, I think one of the things that I really that really helped me. There were two things that very much helped me. One was going to. A writer's conference. I think that um, there are a lot of writer's conferences around the country. Some are better than others. The one I went to was at Westland College during the summer. Um, excellent teachers. I think you, you know, if you look around for people who are doing work um, that you admire and you can find them teaching in these various places, I think that's a great thing to do. I think being around other people who are aspiring to write Yes. Is is just a good 
you know, a very good way to inspire your own work. It's also a way to get yourself into a habit of writing or painting or whatever your particular creative passion is. I, I think that that's the most, the hardest thing. You know, we're joking about cleaning your bathroom and painting the walls. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's just part of, there's a lot to draw you away from this particular thing. Yes. Uh, so I think that going to a conference, being around other people who are doing your work, uh, and settling into a rhythm of, of a routine, even if it's only for those two weeks, um, is well worth it. Well worth it. Because we were talking offline at the break how, you know, I've had these moments where I just stop and I'm stumbled and I'll go paint the bathroom or come up with a project and I get sidetracked and I don't get back to it and I beat myself up. Yeah. I think you have to allow yourself that little bit of time, but not let a month go by, you know. Exactly. I think, you know, the question is, you know, certainly walking around doing some weeding in the yard is great and you'll have, you might have a wonderful idea while you're doing that, but... If you get involved in painting the bathroom, uh, it's probably not a good idea. I know. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I have too many of those projects, and I have these different things I've started. And, you know, also I have kids, and it's you're constantly uh, juggling, yes. you know, different yes. things. But I, I do, uh, when I travel on a plane, I think this is a good idea for people that like to write, I bring yeah. a notebook and a pen. Not necessarily yeah. a computer sometimes, but I just take notes. I think that's a great idea. I think, you know, that's a very, that's an enclosed space. And uh, a lot of people end up doing that, I think. That's great. Any last words before we wrap up? No, I think, you know, I think maybe one of the, well, yes, I do have a last word. I think that one of the things I discovered in this other country is that vulnerability is really at the heart of it. And that vulnerability is at the heart of being human. And the more willing we are to be vulnerable, Uh, the more we'll connect. I love that. Nora, thank you so much for calling into the show. Well, thank you for having me. I've had a good time. Oh, good. I'm so glad. All right. Well, I will be in touch with you, and I look forward to reading your latest book. Thank you. Take care. We've been listening to Get the Funk Out. That was Nora Gallagher. And if you've missed any part of today's show, it's going to be up on my blog uh, probably within the hour. I'm your host, Janine. I'll be back here next Monday with more Get the Funk Out. If you are interested in being a guest on the show or if you know somebody that would be a great guest, it's very simple. Just send an email to Janine, that's J-A-N-E-A-N-E at K-U-C-I dot org. Up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. Have a great Monday, everybody.